when we gather here in a worship service, as we're doing here this morning, do you believe that God himself is present in this place? And if so, how much of him have you really experienced? And do you sometimes wonder whether there's, whether there's more to taste of God's power and love and reality than you ever have? Or on a very personal level, when you become a follower of Jesus, do you believe that God comes into your life and that he is present in your life wherever you go? And, and if so, how much of the reality of God have you ever experienced? Uh, that's the topic of this morning, as you can see in the uh, worship folder, an unashamed call to experience God. Uh, I was meeting with one of our missionaries, Greg Yost, who serves in a tribal community in, in Kenya. And I was asking him about this. I said, I'm speaking about this this coming week, this experience of, of the supernatural in, in the midst of this world. Uh, Greg, do you ever experience any of that in the tribe that you serve there in Kenya? And he began telling me the kinds of stories that I have heard so often. Well, of course, he said, <laughs> on, on some levels, we experience the strongholds of evil that have been there so long. But he said, we've also experienced the miraculous power of God to liberate, to heal and to set free. Now, I'll tell you, Greg Yost is a pretty credible witness. <laughs> he used to work at JPL, so he seems rather rational, reasoned man. Yet he told stories about, about the opportunity to experience the presence and the power of God in this world. Now, I'll tell you, some of us feel a little uncomfortable with this topic, I know. I know immediately when I walk into it, uh, people can say, well, of course, that, that's in a tribal communi uh, community in Africa. That's not in sophisticated Southern California now, is it? Or sometimes we try to say, well, those are only those uneducated, unthinking, emotional people like we see on, on Christian television. <laughs> do you ever go through the, the dial and, and see the preachers ranting and raving? Maybe I should do that sometimes. Walking up and down the aisles and pounding people on the top of the head. Uh, it's not for us. It's not for us. Not at the Lake Avenue Church. Well, if you think that... Uh, I want to read you something from Blaise Pascal. Do you know anything about him? One of the leading mathematicians in the history of the world, usually considered to be the founder of what we call probability statistics. When Pascal was 31 years old, he was a follower of Jesus. When he was 31 years old, he had a personal experience with Jesus Christ that apparently he didn't mention very often, maybe for the same reason we don't talk about this very often. He wrote it down. He marked the date. He sewed it into the lining of his coat. And apparently every time he would wear out a coat, he would take out that document and put it into the next one. And when he died, his servant took the coat and he could feel this paper inside the coat. And he pulled it out and he's passed it on. And I want to read you just a part of it from Blaise Pascal. In the year of grace, 1654... On Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace.
peace. God of Jesus Christ, your God and my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is to be found only in the ways taught in the gospel. Note, note that phrase. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Total submission to Jesus Christ. Eternally in joy for a day's training on earth. I will not forget your words. See, this great thinker, this man who wrote prose in the 17th century, perhaps more beautifully than anybody else in his era, had a personal encounter with God that when he had it, it left him almost stammering. Do you notice it? Uh, just, just trying to find words to express it. Now, I want you to know that almost certainly for Blaise Pascal, this depth of experience with God was not something that he had every moment of his life. I'm sure that he, like so many of us, had times in which there was a dryness. We wondered what God was doing and, and where he was. But he had this personal experience of God that he never wanted to forget, that sustained him in the midst of the greatest difficulties and allowed him always to know even though we live in a world like we live in, where we live in what I call the restricted presence of God. It's not until heaven that we'll know as we're known and that we'll live in the absolute unrestricted presence of God. Still, God is here. God is in this place. And when we gather, God is to be experienced. And that brings us to the text of the morning. We've been looking at it already. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following. I'll tell you, when I read it, it reminded me of what I read, read in that testimony of Blaise Pascal. Uh, it's uh, Paul, this brilliant, brilliant man, almost stuttering, stammering, praying that Christian people will be able to experience the strength and love and reality of God. And that's what I wanted to think about today. Because I'll tell you folks here at Lake Avenue, it is my longing that when we gather here, we won't just be punching the clock. Oh, I guess I've got to show up at church. I always do. But that when we come into this place, we will meet God and know him and then give our lives to him. The way I want to begin to talk about it is what I've called the imminent God. Those who come off and you know it's a phrase I really like, that God is imminent uh, transcendent God, God is other than we are Yes, yes, yes He is uh, not limited By time and space and you and I, As you and I are But this other phrase I really love He is imminent Meaning that God is present And I put it this way The God that we believe in Who enters into time and space And then encounters The whole of our being uh, when, you, when you study this prayer Beginning with verse 14 And, you, and your person such as your pastor is, who likes to analyze text. You've noticed I like to do that, tear them apart and find out how they're organized. This one is hard, I'm telling you. This one is hard because I think he's so overwhelmed with the reality of God and longs so much for God's people to experience the same thing that it's hard to find that organizing principle. But essentially you find it in verses 16 and 17. He is praying that we will have Holy Spirit inner strength. 
He's praying that God will give us the strength in our inner being that comes out of the riches of God's greatness and that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. All right. I think we put it up here. So that Christ, this is the prayer, may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, keep looking at that. You know, that prayer has confused a lot of people. It's confused a lot of people. Do you know why? Because this prayer is a prayer Paul was praying for Christians. Look through the book of Ephesians that we've been studying. It is a book that is written to believers in Ephesus. To all the believers in Ephesus, I'm I'm going to write this. And now he's praying that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. Some people say that makes no sense. Because that's what he already does. I mean, what is a church? That's why I started this sermon this way. What is a church but a place that when we gather, God is here? And what is a Christian, brothers and sisters, but a person who has invited Christ into our lives? In fact, we've talked about it that way with our children, haven't we? When they come to the point that we want them to become followers of Jesus, we tell them what? To ask Jesus into your heart. I remember when we did this with our daughter Heather, that scared her to death. She loved Jesus, but she didn't know if she wanted him inside, you know, the literalism of children. But, but what is a Christian but one who has Christ dwelling within? What on earth is he praying here? Well, I think we all know this, that it's one thing to know something intellectually. And it's something very different to know it experientially. It's one thing to learn something in our heads. It's quite another for that to move down into our hearts and into the entirety of our beings. It's one thing to have talents. It's another thing to use those talents. It's one thing to have material resources. It's another thing to utilize those resources. It's one thing to have God within. It's another thing to absolutely experience His reality. And this is what Paul is talking about. And in the text we're going to look at next week, and I hope you'll come back. It's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. He goes on to pray in the same prayer that we would have the power to grasp and to know. You'll see it. Verses 17 and 18. I pray that you're going to have power to grasp intellectually what is true about God, what God has said about himself. But not only that. To know it from the depths of your being. And what he prays for is that we will know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for us. It's going to be worth coming back just to hear about that. But we're not there yet. The whole point is this. We, we can't put a wedge between our minds and our hearts. In the Christian faith, like Pascal said, the experience of God must be consistent with the God who's revealed himself in the Bible and in the gospel. And so we must do what I'm doing right now. We, we need to take the time to open it up and look at it and learn. But it can't stay there. It must move into the totality of our beings that God is, that He is present, that He is strong, and that His love is lavished upon us. Now, many of us in the American church haven't done very well at putting together this mind and, and heart, have we? Uh, especially, I think, in the... Uh, What has historically been the evangelical church or the mostly Caucasian American church. We we haven't done this very well. Uh, Partly we're so affected by the Enlightenment. Now stick with me here. You who don't like history. Uh, Some major changes happened in the Enlightenment period that that elevated the mind. And and that was a good thing. 
and, and, and because the mind is something that is to love God with the whole of our beings. But the mind almost to the exclusion of the emotion and to the rest of, of the human being. And that affected American society. Uh, it even affected the church. And in, in the past century, many people wanted to hold on to some sort of church or religion. It was, it was a historical part of their lives. But they were afraid of or held at arm's length any supernatural kind of intervention within the life of the church. Now, when I was younger, this went in two directions. Among those in the mainline churches, often those that have been labeled as the more liberal churches, uh, they would read the Bible and exclude the miracles. Some of the great scholars said we've got to demythologize, you know that phrase, demythologize the Bible. So they wanted to say that the miracles those couldn't have happened. It's just the moral and ethical teaching of Jesus. Now that's good. So what they wanted to have was a church without miracles. A church without the necessity of conversion, a church that just focused, and this was a good focus, that just focused upon ethical and moral living, doing good social work. But you see, it, it, was, it was a religion without the supernatural. It was ethics without spirituality. And, and those churches that continue to try to exist are dying in our day, and I think the average age is probably over 70. Now... The churches I went to didn't, didn't embrace that. The churches more committed to the Bible moved in a different direction. There's still been a bit of a, a fear of the presence of God among us, but we became largely what I call teaching churches. You know, we'll show up at church, and as so many of us do, I, don't want, I want you to keep doing this. Taking out notebook and pen and taking notes on the sermon and learning about God, and that's so important because we can't apply what we haven't learned. We can't live what we've never known, so we have to learn what God has said. But we've left it there sometimes. And so sometimes we too have had a church that, that leaves it here with an intellectual faith in which we're not passionately committed to an experience of God. I remember an ad that I once saw. The, the only churches that sort of, and, and here in Southern California, while these larger churches went to the teaching church, or to just the sort of social gospel church, there were a few outbreaks of the Spirit of God. Here in the Azusa Street revivals in the, you know, around the 19th century, those, those 19th to the 20th century allowed that. But mostly we, we kind of said those were just, just the fringes. And in fact, uh, I remember an ad years ago, and I, I captured it as best I could. I remember getting an ad, a flyer, inviting me to a church next to one of those churches that said, at our church, X church, I won't give the name, there will be no mystical experiences. Just come and find out what the Bible says you ought to be doing with your life. Now, you see, once again, it's ethics without spirituality. Now, things have changed. Boy, things have changed in our day. I'm so thankful for the last 12 or 13 years. Most of the time that I've had has been spent with those who are under 35, uh, actually 18 to 25 mostly. And what I found now is there is such an openness to the spiritual world. I haven't met many, if any, atheists in my generation, the boomer generation. You, you met quite a few. You just don't meet many now. There is such a spiritual hunger. But, but those of you who are younger, it's not all perfect with the generation. Now, I love what's happening. I think it gives us an opportunity to talk about how we can know God. But the problem now is so many people want to have a spirituality, 
without any demands. There are people who want to have a spiritual experience without a God speaking into your life and saying, this is how I want you to live. The result is a longing for a spiritual experience, often absolutely on their own, but without any ethics. And so now I see that there are two kinds of larger groups that I that I deal with wanting a comfortable religion. I think I've put them up here. This religion that is comfortable is that some want ethics, how to live without spiritual encounter. And there are a whole lot of others that say, no, 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 I want spirituality, but I, I want it without ethics. And I want you to know the Bible won't allow for either one of those. We come into his presence. God tells us that he is. He reveals himself. We need to study it and meditate upon it. And then he tells us, I am ready to be with you and to strengthen you and allow you to know my love. But when you enter into a relationship with me. It will be one life-changing relationship. See, a God who is imminent, a God who breaks in and encounters the whole of our beings. But if that is true, where then are we to experience this God? That brings me to my second point. I've called it the family father. This is the whole point of the book of Ephesians. The God that we know has called a family into existence. And he meets with us in worship and prayer. One of the points I've been trying to make is that even though we live in a generation in which many people want to experience God alone, I'll just kind of take a walk and eat in Canyon and experience God. And we can. But the primary center of our experience of the reality of God is within the context of this unexpected family. As one person said, this strange group of people that God somehow has called to worship together. That's where we generally meet God. And it brings us back. Do you have your Bible? Look at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Wait a minute. What reason? If you were here two weeks ago, look, look at, back at chapter 3, verse 1. Do you remember that that's the way he started back in chapter 3, verse 1? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, a reason... Is something that was going to lead him to pray. But something stopped him from praying for just a little bit. And you know what it was? That reason, that thing he was going to pray about, had led to him being in prison. And what he wanted to say is that they shouldn't be discouraged simply because he was in prison. Because that reason that put him in prison was worth being in prison for. <laughs> what was that reason? That reason was that God's eternal plan was breaking into this world. Before the creation of the world, God had said, I'm going to have a family of people who are forgiven of their sins. A family of people made up of every tribe and language and nation. None of us deserves to be there. All of us, through faith in Christ, through the gift of God, are now forgiven people. Knowing God as our Father. And in this unexpected and eternal family. And he says, that's worth doing. When I declare that message, I keep getting into trouble. But it's worth it. Chapter 3, verse 10. Because when this church comes into being, even the powers in the heavenly will know something about what God is doing, the wisdom of God. And he says, Christians, it's okay if I'm in prison because you wouldn't even be in the family if this gospel wasn't being declared. I think he'd say that to us here at the Lake Avenue Church. So it's worth doing because this reason that he's going to pray about was that God was bringing a family into being and many of those family members didn't want to be in that same family. Hasn't this been the lesson we've been learning throughout the book of Ephesians? 
God made us right with him through the through faith in Jesus Christ. But he says, listen, the relationships you're to have with one another. God made you right with one another, too. Do you remember the, the quip that I mentioned two weeks ago? Um, God gave us our families. Thank God we can choose our friends because sometimes our families aren't all that great. Well, he says, okay, when it comes to the eternal family, God gives us our family. And, and, but some of the people back in that first century, they didn't want to be in that family. Chapter 2, 11 through 22, particularly the Jews and the Gentiles. Back then, they just hated one another. And Paul essentially, I, I couldn't do it passionately enough. I just feel him pounding on the pulpit and, 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 and being more passionate than I could ever be, waving his arms <laughs> and saying, get over it. That's what God's family is. That's what God's family is. A place where those walls between us and God are down and we're reconciled and at peace with God and a place where the walls that separate people from people are down and the hostility that people have with one another was put to death on the cross. Chapter 2, verse 16. It's that powerful, powerful thing. But every time he preached that message, he got slapped into prison. And then the thing I think that discouraged him is that he kept looking at people in the churches and seeing that they still weren't loving one another. And so he thought, I've got to pray for these people for this reason. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 now. I kneel before the Father. Now, I know we have kneelers. And because of this passage, Christians for centuries have knelt when they prayed. But, you know, in the first century, Jewish people didn't usually kneel when they prayed. Then and now, generally, they stood when they prayed. Have you seen the wailing walls in Jerusalem? It was only in the in the most critical moments when when it was almost a sense of desperation that they would fall on their knees and say, Father, Father, we need help. What is it that is making Paul fall on his knees? I think what's making him fall on his knees is he's wondering how God is ever going to do this. How is he going to make it so that people so different from one another are genuinely going to love not only God but one another? How is the church going to be what the church is? A place where by God's grace... We all know him as our father. So he drives it home from whom this whole family, do you see that? The whole family, all of us on, in heaven and on earth, in Pasadena and Jerusalem and beyond, derives its name. And we're going to need help. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in you. See, this takes us back to chapter 2, verse 22. He turned to those people and he says, what is this church family? We're one new nation. Listen, he said, we're one new, new building where God himself dwells. Verse 22. But I think that they were fighting with one another. And when the world saw it, they didn't see the unity of the church and the presence of God. And so he's praying for them desperately. And I wonder if he'd pray for us. I wonder if he'd pray for us. I'm quite sure that he would. It's all summed up in another place that Paul puts in Galatians 3.28. Look at it. Remember that this is what the church is. A place where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. What else would he add? Neither young nor old, neither educated nor uneducated, 
neither rich nor poor. What are all the things that separate us? And then for you are all one in Christ. For this reason, he said, I have to pray and I have to fall on my knees because we need the power of God to be what we are. In fact, that is the great ethic of the Apostle Paul. I I just want to show that to you as well so that you can see it. It permeates all of his letters that God already tells us what we are. Now we must be what God says that we are. He says it on a, on a personal level. You once were darkness. Now you're light. But you've got to live as children of the light. You've got to be what you are. And as a church, he says, you are one people. Where the walls that generally separate us from one another have been torn down through the blood of Christ. Now be what you are. But he knew we'd need help. Everything wars against it, doesn't it? I've even seen it in this past election. I'll tell you, I was walking around town just listening to people and watching people and recognizing after the election this past week, some people were euphoric and other people were in total despair. And then I thought about the Lake Avenue Church. And, you know, this is the place that has the greatest breadth of viewpoint of any place I've ever been. And if you ask me about what, I would say yes. And so I know that even things like that can separate us. Some some rejoicing, others mourning. And God turns to us and says, I made countries. I made nations. And I made this family. And the things that separate people and countries and nations dare not separate where I dwell. And the bottom line is this, that when this unusual, unexpected family gathers, the world looks at it and and says, wow, God must be in that place. Who else would bring those people into one church? But the other thing that happens is we experience together the presence of God. And I am so much in prayer, my brothers and sisters. We're not a perfect church. I'm glad nobody said amen. I'm I'm so glad. We are not But my longing is this, that increasingly because of the presence and power of God, we will become what God says we are. And that this will be a place that when you come here, you will experience God's people who love you. And in doing so, you will know in this world that God is and that he is sufficient for you and whatever you face. Second point I want to make, we experience presence of God within the context of his family and I know that even though sometimes we'd rather just do it on our own he says no 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 it's here that you will know that I am real but that brings me to the third point God does also experience us in those personal places and I've called it the personal indwelling presence I just want to remind you that the God of the Bible is the God who is in us when we trust him who strengthens us and who loves us now the main point of this prayer is that we are to experience God as we worship together in the church and when we do we'll show the unity of God to this entire world but it does have a message for our individual lives because throughout the Bible we read that we are to experience the indwelling Christ even when we leave the worship of his family we will know that God is there and we need to study the scriptures in this place so we'll grasp that truth But then my prayer is as you leave this place that you will also know how much God loves you and how he's sufficient. Now, again, if you're going to have that personal experience of God, 
You cannot drive a wedge between the mind and the heart. We must study what God has said about himself so that when we have spiritual encounters, we will know that that supernatural being that we are meeting is the same God that we find in the Bible. Because there are other powers in this world. And we dare not drive a wedge between experiencing God personally and experiencing him in community. I've tried to make that point. The God that we meet here on, on, on Sunday mornings, you'll get to know him so that when you meet him outside, you'll know that that is indeed your father. So we cannot do that either. But I want you to know that God is real both in this place and outside. And my prayer is that when you face temptations, you may know his strength. When you face discouragement, you may know how wide and long and high and deep is his love. And when you face challenges that almost overwhelm you. You may know his might. I I want to take you to one more testimony. It's a testimony of the man who is perhaps the greatest philosopher in American history. Yes, he was a pastor. Also the president of Princeton University, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And let me just read you. After his time of worship, he was writing out one day. I'll just read you what he wrote. Once... As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737. So if God meets you in places, write it down. Write it down in your journal. Having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, uh, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. A view of the glory of the Son of God as the mediator between God and man. And his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love. And meek, gentle condescension. Which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. Which, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent. With an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. I, I felt... An ardency of soul to be what I not otherwise know how to express. Emptied and annihilated. To lie in the dust. And to be full of Christ alone. To love him with a holy and pure love. To trust in him. To live upon him. To serve and to follow him. See, I I wanted to cite people to you like Pascal and Edwards. Because I know our thought is the only people who say they have experiences like this are flighty people. This was the president of Princeton University. I wonder if the current one has experiences like this. And Paul wanted us to know this God is. He is your God and he is my God. For this reason, Paul said, I want to pray for you. That you may know in your inner being God's strength. So that you may know that Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. And it's for this reason, my church family, that I wanted to do this message. How do do we experience this kind of God? There, There is no formula. But I've walked with Him a long time. I had moments of these experiences. Let me give you a few phrases. 
First, I want you to know it's a gift. Sometimes people just want to have that spiritual experience more than anything else. Just give me the experience when I'm on my own. But it's a gift given, I found, that when we seek God more than anything he can give. Do you know what I'm saying there? Parents, have you ever thought that sometimes your children want the gift more than you? (laughs) This gift is one I found that when we truly seek to know God, he makes himself known. When we seek him from the depths of our heart. The second thing I'd want to say is, as I know that it begins through faith. We're dead in our own sins. God is holy. And so for those of you who have never known God personally, it begins when you trust Christ. He will forgive you of your sins and he will begin a relationship with God that is very, very real. So the call upon you would be to make sure that your faith has been placed in Christ. And the call upon all of us is these opportunities when we gather to have a renewed commitment of faith in Christ. My life is yours. A third statement, and I I don't know how we can get away from this. This experience of God flows from what is true about God. Grasp and know. Remember those phrases. Grasp and know. You and I must be people who take time to listen to what God teaches. It's important. I know sometimes it's hard to hear me prattle on for so long, but I'll try to be faithful to teach this word. And you learn it because your experience of God must be consistent with what God has said about himself. Uh, That's what Pascal said. I know that the God I meet must be the God of the gospel. Another point that I found is, I didn't know how else to put it, I find that these experiences often involve some kind of sacrifice. It's a gift, and yet that sacrifice usually is of our time. The time not only to learn, but to be still before God. The constant admonition of the Psalms to wait in the presence of the Lord. And in those times to find that he is there. The final point I just want to drive home today. It so often happens within family. Uh, This is a point I have to so often make when I'm in university settings. It happens within family. So our family must be a family and you must be a part of it. We need you. We need you. Uh, You need us. And as we learn to be the family of God, yes, the world sees the reality of God. But we too experience his presence together. Yes, we can on our own, but the God that we meet when we're walking along the ocean or walking in the mountains must be the God that we meet here so that we'll know his voice, that we'll know our Father together. And so today, this is my prayer for us. Today I kneel before our Father from whom the whole family in Pasadena, And beyond, and even in heaven, derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. And I'm praying this so that you may know that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. We started kneeling today. Paul was kneeling as he was praying. And I would like us to take just a few moments at the end of our service to pull out the kneelers again. Um, We are not alone. We are not alone. God is here in this place with us. And as we have the opportunity, I would like you to, in this time of prayer, 
Ask God to make himself real to you. Maybe you've never known him. Maybe he has seemed far away. Take these few moments of silence in this place with God's family. To tell God that you pray that he may make himself real to you. And to show you areas of your life that may be keeping you from him. Give those things to him as we continue worshiping on our knees.